0: Good morning. My name is Nikki Snead. Today's scripture reading it comes from Esther 2, verses 19 through 23, which can be found on page 411 of the Black Pew Bibles. If you don't have a Bible of your own or know someone who needs one, please feel free to take one of the Pew Bibles as our gift to you. Again, that's Esther 2, verses 19 through 23. Please stand as you are able for the reading of God's word. Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him In those days as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate Bigthan and Teresh two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold became angry And sought to lay hands on King Esuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to, to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king, the word of the Lord.
1: So we continue in our series on the book of Esther. As you might recall from, from last week's sermon, we, uh, we tackled this very interesting book. And the, the time frame of these events is uh, about a hundred years after the Babylonians took God's people out of Jerusalem. And so now a uh, regime has changed. Now it's the Persian Empire that took over for the Babylonians, and they said that it's okay for the Jews to come back to Jerusalem and rebuild. You can read about it in the book of um, Ezra and Nehemiah, the rebuilding of the city, the rebuilding of the temple. But at the same time, many, many Jews stayed. And so they're all over the Persian empire, and this is a book about the Jews who stayed, and specifically about Esther, this Jewish girl who becomes a queen. She becomes the new queen, and Mordecai, her cousin, who is um, also involved in the politics of the day. And so the weird thing about Esther is that uh, the name of God is nowhere, nowhere mentioned in the book. So there's no mention of God. In fact, I would say that all religious language has been taken out of the book. It's really strange. And especially if you're familiar with the Bible, all Bible books have a lot to say about God, of course, right? But Esther deliberately, the author deliberately avoids mentioning God or using any religious language. So, the question is why, and my answer is that it's meant to show, the book is meant to show that God is at work even when He is not visible, even when we are in the culture that does not even acknowledge God's existence. Esther is about God's providence. It's about God working behind the scenes. It's about God working in a, through His people and for His people in a culture that's hostile to, to the gospel, which makes the book, I think, very relevant for us today. So today we're going to talk specifically about God's providence. So what do I mean by providence? I'll give you a quote from Calvin before I define it. John Calvin said that the greatest misery... Which can befall a man is to know nothing of God's providence. And conversely, that is an exceptional blessing for him to know it well. Calvin says one of the greatest things you can have in life is know about God's providence, and one of the greatest miseries is not to know about God's providence. So, what is it? God's providence is a biblical teaching that God works all things according to the counsel of his will. Providence is about recognizing God's hand in all of our lives. Providence is about God working, always working, and doing everything according to His plan in your life. This is how the Westminster Confession defines it. God, the great creator of all things, does uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things, from the greatest even to the least, by His most wise and holy providence, according to His infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of His own will, to the praise of the glory of His wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. When we talk about providence, we're talking about God's will being unfolded in your life. All these different events that are happening in your life, All the decisions that are made, all the twists and turns, all of that somehow fits into God's plan. And God is actively involved in all these different things in your life. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the English preacher from mid-20th century, offers this metaphor for us, and I think it's helpful. He says, The doctrine of providence tells us that the universe and everything within it is like a great ship which is being piloted from day to day hour to hour, minute to minute, second to second by God himself. So Lloyd-Jones says, our world, the universe, our lives, it's like this great ship, and God is guiding and he's piloting this ship, and he is attentive to its course. Second by second, moment by moment, God is involved in the development of events in our world. Now, I'd like to expand on this analogy a little bit, Imagine that this ship that's being piloted by God has both a sail and a motor. So most of the time, God skillfully uses currents and winds to keep this ship on course. But every once in a while, he starts up the motor and goes against the wind and goes against the currents. Now, in both cases, if you imagine, in both cases, God is completely in control. The captain of the ship is completely in control whether he is using wind and currents or whether he is using a motor to go against those natural things. Either way, the ship goes according to the course that's laid out for it by the captain. And so God is always in control. God is always directing events in exactly the way He wants them to develop. Sometimes He uses supernatural means. And sometimes it goes against the current. It goes against what we think what the natural development would be. But most of the time, the vast majority of the time, God is using these natural means. In either case, God is completely in control, and His providence rules. So in most of our lives, if you think about your lives, and if your life is any, anything like my life, which I would imagine would be, would be the case— Even if you think about the stories in the Bible, the events recorded in the Bible, most of the time God does not work in miraculous, supernatural ways. Is that true? Yeah, in my life, most of the time God doesn't perform miracles. Sometimes, sure. I'm reading the Bible and there's this great seasons of God's miraculous activity, like Elijah and Elisha, right? or Moses and the crossing of the sea in the Exodus, or, or you get to the apostles in the early church. You know, those are, those are seasons of God's supernatural activity. But there are few in Scripture. The rest of the Bible, the rest of the Bible, which is the majority of the Scriptures, the majority of my life does not include God doing supernatural things. Most of the time He works through natural means. And that is primarily what we call God's providence, that God is working behind the scenes. We can't see Him. And so He's working, but He is nonetheless, and not in any lesser degree, He's in control of my life or of the events that are described in the Scriptures. The prophet says in Isaiah 45, he says, "'Truly you are a God who hides Himself, O God of Israel, the Savior.'" Now, it's interesting that Isaiah would put together, you are God of Israel, our Savior, and yet you are a God who hides Himself. Now, this is exactly the point of Esther. It's an exceptional blessing to know God's providence well, as Calvin says, because this is what our experience of God is most of the time. Most of the time, I don't know, 95, 99% of the time, I don't know what the math is on this, but most of the time… God is working in your life and in my life through providence, through invisible things. It's his invisible hand that's involved in my life. If I only recognize God's activity when he parts the sea, right? And that's when I say, well, now I know God is real. Now I know God is involved in my life. Then the rest of the time, I'm going to be discouraged, frustrated, confused, and probably disappointed. So the doctrine of providence It's very important because that is how we usually deal with God and how God usually deals with us. So for us to understand how He does that and what He does behind the scenes is crucial to our normal experience of God. Now, this is not a denial of God's supernatural, miraculous activity. Absolutely not. But it is pretty rare for God to do that. We have to see that both in Scripture and in our own experience. So the doctrine of providence, let me use another image here is like one of those triangular roads construction signs. You know when they say men at work or construction and there's that sign and it's usually very obvious, it's in your face. This is what the doctrine of providence is for the Christian. It's that sign that says God at work, God at work. And just like a sign on the road affects my driving or should affect my driving, right? The doctrine of providence should affect my living. If I know that God is always working, if I know that God is always behind the scenes, that that He is accomplishing His purposes, that nothing is random, nothing is accidental, then of course I'm going to live my life differently. Okay, so enough with the introduction. I'd like to make three statements this morning regarding our experience of God's invisible hand in our lives, also known as His providence. So number one, do not mistake... God's invisibility for His inactivity. Do not mistake God's invisibility for His inactivity. Now, look at our text here. God is not mentioned, right? He's not a character in the story. There's no religious language, and yet, if you look at our text, this is a perfect confluence of events. Mordecai is at the gate, right when the virgins are gathered the second time. We don't actually know. Ben and I were talking about this and we were like thinking, why, why are the virgins gathered the second time? The first time we knew because there was a contest for the queen. But the second time, what's the reason? We don't know. The reason this is in the text is to tell us this is a unique occurrence. The virgins are there, so the eunuchs are there. Mordecai is there, so Mordecai can overhear the eunuchs talking about their plan to assassinate the king. Mordecai is at the gate, which is like an office. It's basically where all the royal affairs are conducted. He's there at the right time. He overhears or somebody tells him that these two eunuchs, two bodyguards of the king, are planning to assassinate the king. They're angry with him. They guard the threshold, so they guard his private quarters. This is is very possible that they're going to kill the king. They're right there. And somehow... The conversation is overheard. Somehow, Mordecai is there. Somehow, Mordecai has a cousin who's a queen, so he talks to her. She talks to the king. The king investigates it, and they execute the eunuchs. All of these things are happening. Is God involved? Absolutely, God is involved. But we don't see him. We don't see him being involved. We can deduce that by recognizing that all these events had to happen just a certain way for this outcome to happen. And by the way, the king, who now recognizes this plot, he punishes punishes his bodyguards, and then the normal thing would be to reward or to promote Mordecai. He saved the king's life, and nothing happens. This is very unusual that the king would just record it, and nothing happens. Maybe he told his assistant to do something for Mordecai. Maybe he didn't, But it's recorded and nothing is done about it. Now later in the story, I'm not, read the whole book by the way, so I'm going to spoil some things. Spoiler alert, so you can fast forward if you're listening online for about 30 seconds if you want to read the book. But what's happening later is that this incident is very important because now there's a record of Mordecai saving the king, but there's no reward given to him. And so the king later, when he can't sleep at night, he's like, well, I'm just going to read my archives, which many of us do. You know, you can't sleep. I'm going to go to the archive room and and see what's happening down there. That puts you to sleep, I think, usually. Not in this case. The king discovers that Mordecai had saved his life, and he had done nothing for him. Again, there's another piece, and so all these pieces are put together with the result that the Jews are saved and delivered out of Haman's hand. Now, when you look at this story, you say, okay, everything had to happen just this way. The timing is very important. The people, the decisions are very important. Locations are important. Something bigger is happening here. And of course, yes, of course, God is involved. That's the point of Esther, that even when God is not mentioned, He's involved. Just because He's invisible doesn't mean He's not active. What seems random to us often, right? We would look at the story like that and often say, man, that's, that, that's just weird, so strange. All these different events come together in this way, and it seems random to us. But it's actually all part of a well-designed, interconnected web of choices and events and circumstances all carefully governed by the all-wise and all-powerful God. So to use our chess analogy, right? We're using chess as a metaphor for the book of Esther. To use the chess analogy, imagine you had no idea how chess is played, and some of you probably don't. And you look at the board in the middle of the game and you say, what is going on? Why do knights move this way? This makes no sense. Or as we call them, horsies. Why do horses move this way? If you don't know the rules and if you don't know how the game is developed, it seems completely random and just bizarre. But if you knew the rules, and especially if you followed the game, you can see what certain players are doing. You can see what they're trying to get to. You can see which square they're trying to attack. Even though immediately it makes no sense, but long term, you can kind of pick up on what's happening. So the same thing with God's providence. You can, you can look at your life and you can say, man, there's just weird, random events happening to me. But if you're looking at it from God's perspective and knowing about God's providence, all of a sudden you realize these things are really important. The fact that that person made a decision here that prompted this other person to make a decision here that sent this person into my life, the fact that I left my house 10 minutes, ten minutes later that day, all of that matters, you see. And, and, and we, because of the secular mindset of Esther, it forces us to consider it. And it forces us to say, is it random or is God really involved behind all these different events. And of course, the book of Esther is teaching us that just because God is invisible doesn't mean He's not inactive. He's not active. God is always at work, and God is always in control. Now, maybe your life this morning seems chaotic and random. Maybe you feel God is silent and hidden in your life. Learn from the book of Esther. Learn how these events developed as a pattern as an example of how God may be working in your life. A couple of weeks ago at our small group, uh, Jacob asked this question. Shout out to Jacob. Jacob asked this question, where have you seen God work in your life in the last week? That's a very good question. And we all shared in our group of what we've seen in our lives. And at first, I remember thinking, Like, it kind of of startled me a little bit. And I'm thinking, okay, so where did I see God? And you automatically, you, you look for miracles, right? You go to where did God really show himself? And sometimes there's an example like that. But then you start analyzing, and the more I thought about it, the more I was able to change my mindset and be able to process the events of the previous week from the perspective of God's providence, the more it became clear how engaged God has been in my life. I could have easily missed it if Jacob didn't ask the question. But forced to consider, and this is what Esther does, it forces us to consider how God is involved in your life. Now, let me suggest this exercise to you, as, as, even as I am trying to do that in my own spiritual disciplines. Look in, in the evening of the day, look back on the day and say, where have I seen God work? What events happened today and how might they fit in God's plan? Was there something unusual that happened? Was there a combination of events? Was I placed in a particular situation that proved to be important? And you simply recognize that God is involved. He's active. He's working in our lives. Now, secondly, so my first point was not to mistake God's invisibility for His inactivity. Secondly, do not mistake God's invisibility for His ineffectiveness. Do not mistake God's invisibility for his ineffectiveness. Just because God is at work, we've established that, it may not mean that he is good at what he does. It doesn't automatically follow that just because God is active, he's actually good at his work. How can we know that God is effective in what he does? We'll look at the book of Esther again. Has God accomplished his purposes? That's the simple question. Now, hopefully you've read the book. Spoiler alerts again. Read the book. I mean, so see how it develops. If you've read the whole book, of course God has accomplished His purposes. His people were delivered, protected, and blessed, even though the power of the whole Persian empire was set against them, was set to destroy them. That's very important for the author of Esther to point out who the players are here. And he begins by introducing Mordecai as he's a Jew. He's introducing Esther, she's a Jew, even though her identity is then hidden for for some of the rest of the book. But the introduction is these are God's people. These are the people that God has chosen. These are the people that God has committed to, and God will effectively protect them. God will effectively bless them. God is not going to leave them, even when the whole empire is against them. Haman is presented as the enemy of the Jews, which is why he loses, because he's the enemy of God's people. The whole story, though it avoids religious language, there's no mention of the covenant here, but the whole story is told in the context of God's covenant promises to His people. By covenant, I mean God's agreement, God's desire to bless His people. When God picked Abraham and He said, I will bless you, and from you there's going to be a nation, and I will protect this nation. And those who are for this nation will be blessed, those who are against this nation will be cursed. And so God's people, this is just the outworking of that that covenant. And God is, the, the history of Scripture and the history of God's people tells us God is extremely good at effectively blessing his people. And so for us, the new covenant people of God, he promises to work all things together for our good. And as he promises, he actually does it. He actually does it in our lives. William Cooper wrote a hymn about God's providence. It's a great, great hymn worth spending time looking at the words. One of the verses goes like this, deep in unfathomable, oh, I can't say that word, I'm sorry, deep and unfathomable, do you understand this word? I can't say it, unfathomable, kind of kills the, the direction I'm going here, but <laughs> deep and unfathomable minds, I'm just going to go through this, of never failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. This idea of God's never failing skill. that He's very effective. He's very practically effective in what he does. Now imagine this. If we are God's people, bound to him by his covenant, his own oath, his own promise to us to bless us, and God says, I will use all my wisdom and I will use all my power my never-failing skill, I will use all of that to save you and to bless you. Man, this is quite a statement. I mean, even as I'm saying it, I'm realizing God Himself in all that He has says, I'm going to commit myself to work in your life, naturally or supernaturally, to make sure that all the promises of God come true. It's amazing. But that's, that's exactly what's happening in a Christian's life. We see this whole story, this whole principle, and in practice play out in Scripture. Every event, every decision, every circumstance, every turn of history, all of that has worked for the redemption and blessing of God's people. Now, if you just just look at the, the events described in Scripture, right? In Abraham's life, God's providences, and there are many different events, different turns, right, in Abraham and Sarah's lives establish the covenant between God and his people. It's through him that God comes to us. The providences in Moses' life establish the community of God's people. The providences in David's life establish the kingdom. The providences in Solomon's life establish the temple. And then you fast forward to the New Testament, the providences in Paul's life and other apostles' lives establish the church. God is very effective, and it's easy to see that when you're looking back, when you have the record of God's work, you have the record of God's faithfulness. One of the most encouraging things to do, I think, in Scripture is look at the genealogy in Matthew 1. And some of us, we skip over that part. There's a lot of names we can't pronounce, like I can't pronounce certain words this morning. And you look at that, and it seems boring, But every name in that chain, right, every name on that list that eventually leads to Jesus, right, it all culminates in Jesus, but every name is a story of God's providence. Every name shows us how God specifically and intentionally was involved in that life so that that life becomes part of this chain of events all leading up to Jesus who would come to bless and save his people. This is how God works. I'm trying to establish that God is always active. And as He is active, as He is working, He is always effective in accomplishing His purposes. So when you think about your life, remind yourself, say that to yourself, pray that. Put it on, put it, you write it down, put a post-it note on your fridge or above the sink, wherever you can see it, that God is in control of your life that his purposes will not be thwarted, that just like in the book of Esther, he is working behind the scenes to save and bless you. Now here's a warning that comes with that. As much as I want to affirm this idea of God's providence, I want to warn us against being too quick to point out what exactly God is doing in someone's life. Because when you come in in the middle of the story, Now, with Esther, we have the whole story. But often when you're talking to somebody and they're saying, this thing happened to me, many of us are too quick to say, well, this is because God is going to do that. God is going to use that to bring many people to Christ. You don't know that. And I'm afraid that when we jump to conclusions... And maybe for good reasons, we're trying to comfort somebody. Maybe it's a tragedy that's happened to them, and we want to point out how God is going to use it for good, and we want to give something specific to them to hold on to. We do what Job's friends did. Too quick. They're interpreting what God is doing without God telling them what God is doing. Job's friends got in a lot of trouble towards the end of the book. Did you know Job had to go and offer sacrifices for their sin because of how they've counseled him? They were too quick. They were saying, well, obviously this is happening because of, you know, your sin. That's not obvious. And so, when you're comforting somebody who's in the midst of this very difficult situation, yes, tell them that God is in control. Yes, remind them of the good purposes of God developing in their lives. Remind them of God's providence. Remind them how God has worked in the book of Esther, putting different things together for His good pleasure. And yet, at the same time, let's be humble to say, we don't know how this is going to develop still. This story isn't finished yet, and we're going to see And one day, we will know exactly what happened and why. But now, maybe it's okay to say, I don't know. I know who God is. I know His covenant promises, but I don't know exactly what He's doing in your life. So, this week, many of us were thinking about 9-11, of course, on Tuesday. And in Maybe you remember when 9-11 happened. There were many stupid comments that people made in the moment, right? Some of them pastors, maybe many of them pastors. Too quick. You don't know what's happening. Too quick. Be humble and say, I don't know. I trust in God's providence that even this event, even that horrific event, somehow fits in his sovereign good plan for his people. And yet at the same time, I don't know exactly what God is doing. There's a mystery to God's providence, and we need to be humble to accept it both in our lives and say, maybe I don't know, maybe I won't know till glory why God is doing. And that's okay because I know Him as a covenant God who loves me. But certainly when we try to counsel others, let's be careful to give our interpretation of God's providence. And finally, my last point do not mistake God's invisibility for His indifference. Do not mistake God's invisibility for His indifference. He is active, He is effective, and He cares for you as He is working in your life. We may believe that God is at work, and we may believe that He's very good at what He does, but the question is, does He care about us in the moment? Are we just pieces on the board of a cosmic chess game, right? And he just moves us around so that his purposes are achieved, but he doesn't really care about anybody in particular. I think that's the question behind the book of Esther. Remember, these are the people that live in this, in this pagan society now. They've, they're, they're away from the temple. They're away from the city. They're away from, from kingship. There's no priesthood. All these things are gone. They've broken the covenant. They have failed... Uh, they've, not, they've not been obedient to God, and that's why exile happened. And so now they're away, and they're thinking, does God still care for us? Is what God doing behind the scenes, does it apply to me? Is He doing it for my benefit? So maybe for God's people in general, maybe for His purposes in general, but am I part of that? Does He care about me? And the answer in the book of Esther is absolutely Yes. God cares about His people. He is not indifferent to our struggles. He has not rejected us. When we talk about providence, we must remember that it's rooted in God's care for us. He does all that He does because He cares and He loves us. It's His steadfast love that is the foundation of His providence. Yes, He is pursuing His glory, but within that He is pursuing our good. And by our good, I mean every person that is part of his family, that is part of his kingdom. And so even the most difficult events in our lives, the most painful moments in our lives, are used by God for our good. One commentator says, God's invisibly at work, making even life's greatest disappointments a link in a chain of good things yet to come. We cannot see the end of things from the middle and must walk by faith, not by sight. The Lord will bring a greater good, His perfect plan, out of all the frustration we feel and out of all the evil we experience. When all is said and done, God uses even injustice to fulfill His promises to us. This is very personal. When God sends a trial to your life, Yes, we can explain it through providence and say, well, this is a piece of God's plan. But God is also there caring for you in the midst of that trial. So, when we ask, why, God, why are you doing this in my life? That's a legitimate question to ask. That's a providence question. What is God doing in this? But we shouldn't be asking, where is God? Because God is there. God is working in this. He cares for you personally, specifically. You matter to Him. And so, when he sends something difficult in your life, he does not do that without any feeling, without any regard for you. And so, let me tell you this story as we try to wrap up here about William Cooper. So, I quoted from his hymn, God Works in a Mysterious Way. And I'll quote a couple more stanzas in a little bit. It's a great hymn about God's providence, and it's based on William Cooper's very personal, very relevant experience of God in his own life. So yes, he's using Scripture, he's making these big statements, he's, he's theologically accurate when he writes this hymn, but it's coming out of his own experience with God. There are many instances in Cooper's life that show that God was attentive to him, not only using him in the midst of a large plan that's developing, but God was was, was pointing to him, pointing at him when he's working with him. But God is involved in Cooper's life. Now, Cooper, you might know that, struggled with depression all his life. He had four prolonged and very, very dark seasons of depression. When I say depression, I mean a clinical condition. I mean something that is, is very difficult to handle for a person. Many times, and I don't say this lightly, many times Cooper wanted to take his own life. And I mean many times, many attempts. Many times he was so depressed that he was convinced that God has not chosen him for salvation. So on top of the physical struggle and the mental struggle and the emotional struggle, there was a spiritual struggle. He was questioning whether God loved him. So how deep he was in this depression. One time when he decided to end his life, And this is one of the examples of of providence in his life, of God being attentive to him. One time he decided to end his life. He went to the river to drown himself. He had a plan. He thought it out. He got to the river and the tide was too low. And there was a person sitting there in the docks. And Cooper says, as if this is a message from God that I shouldn't take my life. He goes home, he tries to open a bottle of of pills or something he was going to use to hurt himself, to kill himself, and his fingers don't work. He can't open it. There are many instances in his life where God, through natural means, right, like the tide is too low, not enough water, God, through natural means, gets into his life. A story that's commonly told, which we don't know if it's totally true or what what exactly happened, but preachers always tell that, so I'll tell it too. (laughs) Funny how I tell you a story I, I know may not be true, right? But the story is that that he again, one of those attempts, he wants to he wants to end his life. So so he goes, he calls a carriage, and 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 carriage comes, and so he's he he's, he wants to be taken to this bridge to jump off the bridge. And it's so foggy in London that the carriage gets lost, ends up coming back right to his house. So he falls asleep, wakes up, and he's back home. Those kinds of instances of God's providence in his life. Now, this is particular to him. This doesn't happen with everybody. There are many people who struggle with depression that don't have these kinds of things happening to them. We can't apply it to everybody, but we can look at one life and say, look, God is involved. God cares for him. He has a breakdown early in his life. He's put into this insane asylum in in London under the care of Dr. Cotton. Dr. Cotton is an evangelical believer, He witnesses to him. Cooper discovers a Bible that's left on a bench. He ends up staying at that place for 12 extra months because he's growing spiritually. It's God's providence. He continues to struggle with depression all his life, up up and down in four major, major seasons of depression. And God sends different people. He puts them in different situations where he has helped. God places him in a church pastored by John Newton. Reportedly... The happiest and healthiest pastor in all of England. <laughs> Why is that? Why pair those two people up? Because one needs the other, and the other one needs that one. And so, Newton invests a lot of his time and energy into Cooper. didn't have to do that. In fact, when, when uh, Newton moves to another pastorate, he continues to, to invest in Cooper. Cooper follows him. I mean, it's, it's an amazing story of seeing how God placed two people at the right time together, Newton encourages Cooper to go on visitation rounds with him as a pastor, to go encourage people to get him out of his, his mindset. He encourages him to write hymns, and so they together write hymns. There's, we have a hymn book that was written by, by, by those two, two Christians. And so it breaks him out. This is where we get the Amazing Grace written by Newton. This is where we get God Works in a Mysterious Way written by Cooper. So you have all those different things coming together. All natural things, all natural occurrences, natural events, but they all come together to bless this one believer because God is attentive to each one of us personally. And so when we talk about God's providence, this isn't just this general, this big picture stuff. Of course it is that, but it's also very personal and intentional and meant to show you that God cares for you. Cooper, because of all these providences in his life, as well as the testimony of Scripture, which he held on to even when he didn't believe that. He would write hymns that he didn't believe in his heart, but knew them to be true from Scripture. Because of that, even in the midst of all, all of his tremendous pain and suffering, Cooper could write, Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Looking at the dark clouds in his life, he knows that the rain is going to come and the blessing is going to come from that. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. He could write that because he knew it from his experience, because he knew that God cared for him. As God cared for Cooper, as God cared for Mordecai and Esther, so He cares for you. Now, friends, I don't know what you're coming in with to church this morning. I don't know what, what you're bringing in your heart, what struggles you have, what you're dealing with, what providences you see in your life from God. But I'd like to tell you that God is providentially involved in your life, that he is very effective in accomplishing his purposes, and that he cares specifically for you and even the very difficult and painful things in your life are part of His good providence. Behind a frowning providence, what seems like a frown to us, He hides a smiling face. I'll finish with this. What is the greatest example of God's providence? Unquestionably, it's the cross of Jesus. Unquestionably. Because of the events because of the scale of what happened, because of what God did in it. Now, when you think about Christ's life, sure, there were many miracles during his ministry. Sure, God spoke to him and through him. There's audible voice of God in Christ's life. But when Jesus was on the cross, God was silent. When he was on the cross, God was hidden. When Jesus was dying, it's impossible to think of a greater tragedy than that. The unjust murder of a perfect human being. Was God active in his death? Yes. God was active. He was invisible, but he was active in Jesus' death. Because Scripture tells us Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God is very much orchestrating these events even as Jesus is dying on the cross. Much like in the book of Esther, God is working behind the scenes. He's bringing all these different people together. Pilate and Herod, right? Like all these people and the high priests and his disciples. Everybody's right where they need to be so the, the outcome that God wants is achieved. The cross is the culmination of millennia of God's providential work. All these different things have to fit together. All these streams have to come into one river on the cross. And finally when Jesus dies and we know what's happened and we can read the scriptures before he died and after he died, we would say of course God is active in this. Of course this was not an accident. This is not random. God is very much involved in that. Let's ask the next question was God effective? in accomplishing His purposes in the death of Jesus. What's the answer to that? Yes, absolutely. The cross is the fulfillment of hundreds of promises that God made to us. It's on the cross that the new covenant is sealed, that we are ushered into this new type of relationship with God by grace. Everyone who believes in Jesus can be forgiven and accepted by God and given all the benefits of somebody who belongs To God's family and God's kingdom. God did exactly what He has purposed for His people on the cross. The cross redeems us, the cross restores us, the cross reconciles us to God. So when you look at the cross and you say, What is happening here? Is God even here? Yes, God is here. And what is God doing? God is blessing us, God is working out His purposes, and God is accomplishing what He wants for His people. His redemptive purpose is for us. And so the final question is, was God caring for us in the death of Jesus? And the answer again is what? Yes. When Jesus died, this is the ultimate evidence, this is the ultimate expression of God's love for us. If he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for my sins, how can I ever question that he loves me? This is how providence works. For us to understand providence and apply it to our lives, we have to see it through the lens of the gospel and specifically the cross of Jesus.